Well, good morning. I have two goals this morning that may seem to be incompatible and irreconcilable because to emphasize one, it may seem that I'm de-emphasizing or minimizing the other. And I want to emphasize the, the value and the dignity of marriage this morning. And the problem is that marriage is not held in a high regard in our society. And, and even worse, it's, it isn't held in a high regard in some churches across this nation. And so when it comes to marriage, our American standards seem to infiltrate into our kingdom standards. And so we kind of get those lines blurred sometimes until eventually those standards are eroded. And so when, when we come to view marriage as, as merely a temporary arrangement between two people, rather than a, a covenant agreement, a covenant relationship, then we have ventured into out of the kingdom of God and into the kingdom of the world. And so whether or not people stay married has become an issue of, of what brings immediate happiness to me or to, to that, that spouse, or instant gratification, rather than an issue of obedience to the Word of God. And so, here's my dilemma. And so, I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to contribute to the stigma and the shame that those who have experienced divorce may live with, especially those within the church, because the divorce can sometimes be, be held in, in contempt and viewed with suspicion, even to some degree, maybe regarded as second-class kingdom citizens. And so they could be treated as if they've committed this unpardonable sin. And you may think that, that you don't think about them that way. And I may think I don't think that way, but sometimes maybe we do. And so because of both the public nature of divorce and, and its incredibly painful impact on individuals and, and families and, and such a, a ripple effect around, divorced people can feel extraordinarily vulnerable to these things. And so here's my problem. How do I honor and how do I esteem marriage without dishonoring and defaming those who have experienced divorce? And how am I to encourage and to affirm divorced people without appearing to minimize the importance of honoring one's marriage commitments and vows? And so if I magnify the value of marriage and stress the importance of faithfulness and the importance of, of commitment to the marriage vows, and then maybe somebody divorced might feel judged and rejected and unfit for ministry and service in the church. But then if I express compassion and I express love for those who have been divorced and, and remind them of how much God does love them, then some may think that I'm minimizing it, that I'm even contributing to the very devaluation of marriage that I'm supposedly speaking against. And so how do you stress the permanence of marriage without condemning the divorce? And how do I love and affirm the divorced person without condoning sin? Y'all want to know what goes on during the week? There you have it. <laughs> so our challenge then is to mingle this call to obedience with, with tears of compassion. That is the challenge of the church. No matter what situation somebody is in, with our relationships with one another and our, our relationship with those in the world around us, our challenge is always to mingle the tears of compassion with, with, with obedience with uncompromising high standards of Scripture. So to those who have been through divorce, my emphasis on the importance of marriage and, and on honoring one's commitment, one's marriage vows, and fighting to stay together does not mean that I do not love you and I do not care about you and I am not sensitive to what you have been through in life or that you're not wanted here or cannot fit into ministry and be active in the kingdom of God. And to the married or the soon-to-be married, I would say this that my emphasis on the dignity 
of someone who has been through divorce and their value to God and forgiveness and, and restoration that is available to them through the cross does not mean that we can take a flippant, casual attitude towards marriage or that marriage is not worth preserving or that we're adopting some sort of loose view towards sin. And so living in God's kingdom come, straddling this, this present nature, this flesh, with an eternal sight that we have our eyes set on, means that, 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 that we must live based on God's righteousness and not our preferences. And so that's what people are dealing with then, when Jesus walked this earth, and that's what we deal with now. There's nothing different in that basic struggle. And so with this spiritual corrective lenses, that Jesus puts on. He says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31, it has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, Jesus says, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so you don't necessarily have to be a, a Star Wars fan to recognize the opening crawl of the most successful merchandising franchise in, in, in American history. And so a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And so for those who know these words well, it probably take, takes our minds back. It takes me back to eight or nine years old. Special time in my life. It, it, these words invoke thoughts. Memories, relationships, feelings that connect me in a certain way without having to say anything else. If somebody says a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, immediately I am transported to a place and time in my life. And so it's kind of like in the beginning. When someone says in the beginning, these are the words that resonate throughout Christianity and Judaism even. And for those whose faith rests on a Creator God who was before anything else, these three words can invoke a fountain of thoughts regarding our own human existence. And so as people are, who are living by faith, people living in, in the belief of this God of eternity, our, our striving, our intent, our pursuit, our desire should be to know His will and to follow His will to the best of our human limitations. And so humbly relying on and resting in His grace and His mercy for our shortcomings. And so I saw, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus had just taught a lesson about the radical approach to dealing with, with our human limitations. You remember, specifically sin. And it was nothing short of wilderness surgery that He had prescribed, right? So if your hand causes you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. If your eye offends you, what do you do? You pluck it out. You tear it out. You get radical with sin. And at that time, He was talking about these adulterous thoughts that can enter your heart. Otherwise, we're in danger of what Jesus calls the unquenchable fire of hell. His words. And so in this, his point, while arguably, you know, cutting something off was not his literal intent. He was making a very strong point there. It stresses that how nothing, nothing is more important to our eternal health and wholeness than living by God's holy standards. And so these were some serious words, and these were plain words, and these were hard words. Because living in the kingdom reign of God requires a radical change in our behavior. And behavior starts with our thinking. And so it requires reorienting our living from a place of self-satisfaction and self-gratification to a place of holiness. So Jesus says, you have heard. This is what, this is what you've heard, but I say. 
I say. And so this comes up again in Matthew 19 in verse four. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And divorce was as much a controversial subject in Jesus' day as it stands today. And so you had two main schools of thought that Jesus was, was in the middle of here that centered around these two famous uh, proponents of religious thought, of Judaism. And so you had the school of, of Rabbi Hillel and you had a Rabbi Shammai. You had these two teachers and so you, you, you listened to one and you, you kind of leaned towards one or the other. And so Hillel and Shammai were the two leading teachers during the turn of the first century who founded these two opposing schools of, of Jewish thought. And so the debate now in these schools was on matters of ritual ethics, of, 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 of practice, of theology, of critically shaping the law, the oral law of Judaism. And the oral law was what guided the people in following the written law. It was, it was a commentary, if you will, on the written law. And so uh, oral law was based on the wisdom of the teachers and how, how they understood the historical commands of God. But with the oral law, as with our own discerning and our own deciding and deciphering today, it can be challenging. It can be challenging to set aside our own prejudice as we determine the meaning of Scripture in our context and, and, and how we apply it to our lives today, what it meant then and, and what it means now. And so in general, the house of Shammai's position was stricter than those of Hillel. So they both submitted to God's law they, 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 as given to Moses. They, they both believed in the law of Moses, but the difference came in how they interpreted that law. And so this reorienting of understanding by Jesus centered around Deuteronomy 24. You go back to the law where it started. And so in that law, it says that if a man marries a woman and she does not please him because he's found something offensive in her, then he may draw up a divorce document, give it to her and evict her from his house. And when she has left him, she may go and become someone else's wife. If the second husband rejects her and then divorces her, gives her the papers and evicts her from his house, or if the second husband who married her dies... Her first husband who divorced her is not permitted to remarry after remarry her after she has become ritually impure, for that is offensive to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And so the debate at this time that Jesus was here among these schools of, of religious thought, schools of a rabbi centered around this question, what is offensive? What constitutes offensive? And so this phrase troubled them. And it troubles commentators and translators now. And so it was up for debate. And so Hillel thought it was something as little as wearing the wrong perfume or not cleaning the the house well enough. Something very, very small. This was known as the any cause divorce. And so he he prescribed to that. And those who, who leaned that way prescribed to the any cause divorce. It was the cleanest. It was the quickest. It was the most convenient. And it placed the burden completely on the one accused. And so since the time of Moses, divorce has favored the husband. And so this is where a big problem arose. And so, in fact, we saw with, with adultery, when we talked, looked at that and, and Jesus addressing it, that, that, that a woman really had no right to initiate 
a divorce. She had little ability to, to, to stop a divorce decree, which is why Moses would command that the man must at least give her a legal document, at least a legal paper, allowing her the possibility of being someone else's wife, which means that she would be able to be cared for and, 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 and taken care of financially because she had no way to provide for herself. And so then Shammai, on the other hand, he thought it was, uh, adultery was, was no less the, the, the requirement for, for trial and strong evidence. It placed the, the, the burden on the accuser to prove it. And so adultery must be the only reason. So the problem with both of these is how they have spent considerable ink and debate on the right way to get out of a marriage. But the right way to get out of a marriage is not the, the kingdom way. I say, yeah, but, but we live in different times. Rules are different today. We need a, a modern understanding of this. And yes, we do live in different times. Absolutely. But we still live on the outside of Eden. We still live on this side of the fall. And so we still live under the curse of Adam and Eve. Yet Jesus knew that the answers were found in going back to the beginning. Going back before that time. And so in Genesis 2 and verse 23... The man said, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones as he looked at his wife and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And of course, in our society today, in our economy today, it's much easier for a wife to initiate a divorce than it was when these Pharisees were were trying to, to, to find out where Jesus stood on all this stuff. And so, when they were asking Jesus. And so, God's purpose for marriage is not fulfilled in divorce, but only in seeing God's original plan for marriage. That's male and female. It's complementary together. And so, a relationship so unique and so special that a man's desire is not to forsake his wife, but to forsake his father and mother and cling to his wife just as she's his own body, one flesh. So you imagine the, 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 the idea of two types of metal being melted down and then being mixed together and cooled until they're one solid piece, yet they're, 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 they're still two separate compounds. Now you go in there and you try to separate those original metals. You try to do that. That is the effect on divorce on humanity, on the, on the person. And not just the person physically or emotionally, but spiritually. It's a, it's a ripping apart and a disfiguring. And so not only meaning they should be considered as one body, but also two souls in one body with a complete union of interests. This indissoluble partnership of life and, and, and fortune and comfort and support and, and desires and, and inclinations and joys and sorrows and and as Jesus reminded the Pharisees, marriage is spiritually binding before God. And so what God has joined together should not be separated by human decision. Because of the hardness of heart, though, because of the hardness of heart, divorce was allowed, but not by God's intention. And so they knew the law. Those asking this question, they knew the law. And they knew the law made provision for divorce. But Jesus knows our heart. And He knows our purpose. And He knows that and Jesus' purpose was not to lay down the law, but rather to, to reassert this ideal 
exposing the sin of divorce. And so thereby disturbing this, the, the complacency that they had gotten into. And so Palestinian Jewish husbands could divorce their wife for virtually any reason. And soon Gentiles would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Jesus saw this. He knew this was coming. Those he was, he was speaking to here before his crucifixion, they didn't have any idea that those outside of Judaism would be invited into God's kingdom. But Jesus knows this. And so those Gentiles, they allowed men or women to unilaterally divorce a spouse without obtaining any sort of, of consent, any sort of reasoning uh, behind it. So they had a no, a, a no fault in, in any cause, divorce. And so by removing the right of the divorce for everyone, then Jesus is protecting a person from being betrayed by their spouse. And so demanding that we respect one another enough to do our utmost to make our marriage work rather than abandoning the partner with whom we've entered into that covenant. So Jesus opposed divorce to protect marriage and to protect family. And so in doing so, he intended to to, to prevent the betrayal of an innocent spouse. And that's why young people... You must see the decision to marry as the second most important decision that you will ever make. Because the first decision is whether or not you're going to be joined to Christ through His death and burial and resurrection and baptism. And the second most important decision is whether or not you are going to be joining yourself to someone else in marriage. Because the choice you make on the second will powerfully and directly affect your choice on the first. And so the apostles recognize this. And so they're scratching their heads because they've grown up listening to these arguments and they lean one way or the other. And so in Matthew 19 and verse 10, the disciples said to him, well, this is the case, Jesus. I mean, if what you say is true, with a husband and a wife, it's better not even to marry. Yes, it is. It is better not to marry. Later on, Paul's going to express this. He's going to tell us why. His preference in a letter to Christians around the Mediterranean city of Corinth, he says, my preference is people don't marry at all. But rather, they keep themselves pure and they keep themselves devoted completely to holiness in Christ. Paul says, that's my preference. But it is a preference because he concedes that's not possible for most people. That's not the call of everybody. And so he's writing this, by the way, by this point, to some Gentiles who are now Christians, the ones we mentioned earlier. And I'd say they had the most radical change to make when they enter God's kingdom, because at least the Jewish Christians had a foundation of, of creator God and the prophecies of salvation to, to build on as they move forward in this kingdom of God. So then in 1 Corinthians 7:10, Paul says to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife should not divorce a husband, but if she does, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband should not divorce his wife. And this was radical teaching. But as we've seen, Jesus calls disciples to a radical life, at least compared to non-believers. And so living in the kingdom of God sets us against, opposed to the thinking and the preferences and the attitude and the expectations of those who do not submit themselves to God's way. And so this Gentile heritage that these new Christians who received Mark's writing as he writes to them, they would have heard this teaching from a more radical than those converted from Judaism. And so commitment and love and marriage are not conditional. 
And nothing makes this more clear than how Scripture portrays the relationship between Jesus and the church. And he portrays that as, as one of marriage. And so Paul writes again. He writes to Christians around the Roman province of Ephesus. And in ruins located in present-day Turkey. And so he charges the church there to submit to one another in reverence to Christ. He said, you want to know what God thinks about commitment? Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word, so that he may present the church to himself as glorious, not having a stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it. And takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I'm actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each one of you must also love his own wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. So God didn't wait until Jesus came to earth to say, hey, you know what? I think I'll set up this, this body of Christ church thing to look like a marriage. He didn't wait for that. From the beginning, from a long time ago, God created marriage as a foreshadow, looking ahead as what was already planned as the bride of Christ, the church. And that's you and me. That's us. So how loving, how loving is that bond between Jesus and the church? How far did Jesus go to make it that way? How far did He go to preserve it, to to, to nurture it, to care for it? How deeply does His desire for this relationship to thrive, how, how deep is that? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? See, there's a there's a delusion of that question that they were asking Him. It's like, I love Jesus, but not the church. You can't. They are inseparable. So if your first question is, how do I get out? Then we're asking the wrong question. Our first question should be, how do I honor and how do I cherish and love this body? So are we talking about marriage or are we talking about the church? Yes. Yes. And when we see each other from this perspective of God's kingdom, how we treat each other changes. Our relationships change and things that we gripe about or complain about, things we get mad about at each other or leave about. Things we refuse to be involved in because of all of those things become shameful in light of this relationship between Christ and His church. Would you divorce yourself from this assembly for any cause? So our marriage to our spouse is to be a reflection of our marriage to Christ. And our marriage to Christ is to be reflected in our marriage to our spouse. And some would say, well, this whole married to Jesus thing sounds too weird to me. And if it does, it's because being being influenced by a messed up society. Because it does sound weird to them. It's not weird to God. God's the one who said it. He's the one who created the sanctity of marriage. And we are the ones who've made it weird. 
And so Jesus calls us back to the beginning, to his intent. And that means we've got to make a change. We have to change the way we're thinking. See, we are drenched in social normality. We are drenched in our social norms as a Christian, striving to, to live by our commitment to Christ. We strain to keep ourselves unstained from the wickedness of this world. But we've got to stay grounded in God's foundational purpose for marriage. And we have to remove the stigma from those who are either single for any reason. The kingdom of God is not only for the married or single because they've been divorced. Jesus addressed this hardness of hearts of those who would take marriage so lightly even manipulating it to their own advantage. Because Jesus opposed divorce. He did it to protect marriage and to protect family. And in doing so, to protect the innocent, the one who was sinned against. And so I believe when we punish innocent parties in divorces today by maybe attaching emotional or social stigma to them, then we interpret Jesus legalistically with hearts as hard as those of His opponents. Who were approaching him. And so they, they understood neither the point of Jesus' teaching nor the heart of God that motivated him. And so we also do the same when we condone inappropriate divorce or the hardness of heart in marriage that can lead to divorce or, in other ways, ruin the intimacy of the one flesh that, that God intends. And so, when this anything goes, anything goes, world, my life is my life, no business of yours, society that we're living in. The church must stand as a testimony, both in word and in practice, of the redeeming nature of God's kingdom. And so through Jesus, we have forgiveness of sin. And we have citizenship in the kingdom of God. And there is no failure of humanity that was not overcome by the life and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. And yet there is no shortage of brokenness and ruin either. It's caused by sinfulness. And that tests the effectiveness every day of Jesus' sacrifice. doesn't minimize it, but it sure tests it, right? So our challenge, church, our challenge, Christian, is to, to mingle the call to obedience with the tears of compassion. It's to be, to be tender without compromising the, the, the high standards of Scripture. And there are very few, if any of us, whose family has not been touched by divorce. And as a family of God, we certainly have been affected by divorce. And there are wounds, wounds of resentment, wounds of guilt, wounds of hurt, wounds of, of shame, among others. And all of that can find resolution through the grace of God and His community. And from the beginning, in the beginning, God's eternal plan always was and has been to redeem His creation from the destructive effects of sin. So the gospel of Jesus is either good news for everyone or it's good news for no one. And in that gospel, we find forgiveness. We find it when we repent of our sins and we find patience right now when we don't. We find hope from despair. We find peace that that's, surpasses our ability to even understand it. And that's God's plan. That's been His plan from the beginning. God came to the earth, came here to, to heal the brokenhearted and to bind up the wounds of, of sin and, and to redeem the people of God and, and so that the redeemed people of God will embody this, this hope and this redemption for broken people, and including the divorced. Because we are the body of Christ. And it was in and through His body 
that redemption came to all. And it still does. It still does. We must live as testimony to God's eternal promise and to His kingdom come. And so this morning, I call all of us to examine ourselves and what in our life is keeping us from living as God's kingdom come today. Example in our lives around us of our attitude towards sin, our attitude towards God's Word, our attitude towards the life we've been called to through Jesus Christ, our attitude towards eternity, our attitude towards the present. All of that is in question when we hold it up to Christ, the exemplar. So this morning, if there is, if there is sin in your heart, if there is guilt weighing you down, if there is regret that's keeping you from living your life in Christ, God calls you to Repent of that. Give it over to Him. Repentance means change. Not partially. Completely. Turn around. Opposite direction. And walk with Christ. And live glorious in His kingdom. In service to Him. And as example to those around us. And if you're ready to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to be washed clean because of Christ's perfect life, His perfect obedience, His death, and His glorious resurrection. And the water stands ready today. And you were baptized into Christ, raised as a new creature, new citizenship with a new kingdom and a new promise, the promise of eternal life and the gift of God's Spirit as that guarantee, that, that deposit, that assurance that when we walk with Christ today, we will walk with Him for eternity. If we can stand in a moment and sing a song of encouragement. If we can pray with you and for you. If we can share in your decision to become a child of God. Will you make that commitment to Him this morning as we stand and sing this song?